Mark chapter 9. Let's pray. Lord, great time to be here tonight to hear what you have to say. And I, and I pray you would really just speak to our hearts to really know what you want us to do with this. Not, not just to hear it, but to apply it and to live it out in all ways and all things. You are a good God. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 9. We have finally finished up our section there of the transfiguration. And when them came down off the mountain, we've spent a few weeks in that. And now we're moving on here a little bit. We're into the last year of Christ's ministry on this earth. And what you see is a definite focus here towards his death and resurrection. I cannot emphasize this to you enough. The idea of Christ dying on the cross and rising again is the most important event that's ever happened in the history of the world. It was so important that at one time we changed our calendars to mark this idea of where Christ came and Christ lived. We celebrate, we stop and understand Resurrection Sunday as this day where the tomb is empty. Jesus had this mindset. And that's what you see going on here. Pick it up with me now in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. This is not the first time we've heard this teaching point. Jump back one chapter to Mark 8, verse 31. And he, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we focused, when we taught on that weeks ago, that idea of must. This must happen. This is the reason he came. You know, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate this little baby in a manger. Christmas is really day one of a 33-year-long journey of death. And, you know, if you go back to some of the first prophecies given back during the idea of Christmas, one of the prophecies given to Mary is that he would be pierced for our sins. This is the idea. Jesus came to die. And in this last year in his life, you're seeing this focus. The Son of Man must die. Verse 31, I'm going to go and this is going to happen. Keep your hand right here. We're coming right back to it. Go with me to Luke real quick. Luke chapter 9. One book to the right. I want you to see the emphasis as this is mentioned here in Luke chapter 9. Look at Luke 9.51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He fixed it. This is such a strong word in the Greek. This, this is this idea that it is almost set in stone. He has to do this. This becomes his sole focus, is I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And you can see him trying to get this emphasis across. We read it in Mark 8.31. We read it in Mark 9.31. Back up just a little bit in Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 43. This is Luke's account of the same story that we're reading in Mark. It says, They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Let him sink down into your ears. Guys, Get this. Get this. Any of you that's ever had kids, you know what I'm talking about. You're telling them what to do. You're giving them marching orders. Like, are you hearing me? Are you listening? As a pastor, I run into this a lot. I can do a message on a topic. And then someone says, hey, pastor, can I talk to you after church? 
So we talk after church for a minute or two, and they bring up the thing that we just talked about in the message. It's like, did you not even hear it? Jesus is trying to make this abundantly clear to his disciples. Guys, I'm going to go die. To take a look at 45 of Luke 9. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them. So they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, we'll get to that point here in a little bit. But the first point that we have tonight, we just got two points. The idea, keep the important things the important things. I know that is such a simplistic point, folks. Dawn and I got this little rule we use in our marriage. If it's not eternal, why are we getting worked up about it? We just had something recently where we needed to go in multiple different directions to get multiple things done. Dawn and I stopped. We talked about it. We prayed about it. We said, what's the most important thing? Let's do the most important thing. If it's the most important thing, do it. Okay, well, so-and-so is going to get upset that we're not committing to this. So-and-so is going to be bothered. This isn't going to get done. Okay, it's not the most important thing. I wish I could give credit to the person I heard say this, but I can't. I don't remember who it was. They said the danger is not missing the big things in life. The danger is giving too much attention to the little things. There's a lot of truth to that. You're not going to miss the big things. We live in fear of missing big things. The danger is you see the big thing. and You don't give it the attention it needs because you're spending so much time giving attention to little things. What does that look like practically? I'm not going to pick on you guys. I'll pick on Dawn and I, so that way you guys don't take it personally. That I'll walk around my house once a week looking at my, my flower beds, spraying and pulling weeds, but yet struggle with the idea of, oh, I don't want to get up this early to do devotions. My wife will make sure socks are matched in the proper clothes, go to the proper person, and the dishes are clean, etc., but yet, should she really just maybe let that load of laundry go because I could really invest time into prayer for the next generation following me? We know what the big things are, but we get caught up in the little things. Be careful with that. The example of Jesus is he knew where he was supposed to go, Jerusalem. He knew what he was supposed to do there, die. And guess what? That's what he's going to go do. He is going to go die. Now, why didn't they get it? Verse 32. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Let's talk about asking God questions. Let's look at a neat example of this. Back to Luke, Luke chapter 1. Every now and then I run into somebody who wants to take God on. Almost this Job mentality. When I die and I go to heaven, I have a list of questions for God. Careful with that. But at the same time, here's the flip side to this. Afraid to ask a question. We'll talk about it in a little bit. I'm getting to it, why they would be afraid to ask questions. But in Luke chapter 1, you see two people asking questions. One is commended, one is punished for it. Okay, let's talk about the first one. Zacharias. Zacharias, serving in the temple. He is the father of John the Baptist. Him and his wife, Anna, Anna, excuse me, Anna, did not have any kids. And so what happens here is this. The angel miraculously appears to him, and you see this in Luke chapter 1. This is a big deal. Take a look here right now in verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This is a huge ordeal. And I don't want to get into a lot of detail on this because I, I could really get sucked into this. But... 
the way the temple worked was you had the altar of incense inside. And it was a huge honor and privilege for the priest to go in to the altar of incense and make sure the incense was burning at all times. And you would do this in the morning and the evening there. And so he would go in. And as you go into this temple, you got the showbread, you got the incense. You only go in there a couple times and you are within seeing distance of the veil that's covering the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this is huge, folks. You are close as you could possibly physically get to the presence of God in the Old Testament other than the high priest that goes in on the Day of Atonement. So this is his day. He goes in. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, let's be realistic here, folks. These priests have been doing this for hundreds of years. They're human beings. They want to go home. Okay? They're done. They've killed a lot of animals today. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of everything. Zacharias, get in there. Light the incense. Go home. Well, what happens is, verse 11, an angel appears. Zacharias falls down. Trouble, fear falls on him. And he has this conversation with him saying, excuse me, your wife Elizabeth, excuse me, I called her Anna earlier. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So there's this amazing thing that's going on. Jump ahead to 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. What's taking this old guy this long? But while this angel appears to him and says, you're going to have this miraculous child because him and Elizabeth were so far advanced in age. Take a look at 18. Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, who was sent to speak to you and bring you these good glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their own time. So the disciples were afraid to ask a question. So now we got a guy that does ask a question, and now he can't talk. Build with me here. Jump down now. Go down to now, uh, let's go Luke 1, verse 30. Angel, Gabriel, appears now to Mary, verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Zacharias asks a question, and he's mute. Disciples are too afraid to ask the question. We're picking on them. Mary gets to ask a question, and nothing happens to her. That sounds sexist, right? Somebody agreed with that. I heard the mm over there. Zacharias is walking in a skeptical unbelief. That word for no and it's 18. How shall I know this? If you study out that word, how can you make sure of this? Meaning, how are you going to prove this to me? Mary, her question is almost wonder-filled amazement. How can this be? God's not opposed to questions, folks. He likes questions in faith. He likes questions in amazement. God, how can you? This is amazing. Versus, yeah, God, how are you going to do this? Zacharias, his question had doubt. 
Mary's question had amazement. The disciples' question had fear. So therefore, they didn't ask any questions. Jump back now to Mark chapter 9. You want to ask God a question? Ask it in faith. Lord, I'm not seeing this one. Will you please show me how you're going to move and work? Go read the Psalms. The psalmist asked questions all the time, but he always ended the Psalms with faith and praise and trust. Habakkuk is a great book on Habakkuk asking questions. God, why? But the catch is Habakkuk says, I will sit now and wait for your answer, Lord. If you're going to ask God a question, have enough faith to say, Lord, I'm going to wait to see what you say because I do know you can move mountains. And I want to be like Mary. My question is a wonder-filled amazement on your power, not a skeptical unbelief of Zacharias or not fear of the disciples. Now, why would the disciples be afraid? Because take a look at 33. Then he came to Capernaum. And he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Why weren't they asking questions? Why didn't they understand? Why were they afraid to ask him? Because they were spending all their energy arguing about who was the greatest. No time to ask questions, because right now we're having a debate on who the greatest is. Do you realize how absolutely idiotic that conversation is? Who is the greatest? Just, just think this through with me. What do we remotely have to be prideful about? Your salvation is a gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace. According to Romans, the faith you have is given to you by God. The very breath I have right now is a gift from God. The ability to speak. Did I not make the tongue, says God? So if I want to get prideful about teaching, I didn't, ask, I didn't get that gift myself. It's a gift. God gave it to me. Faith, God gave it. The tongue, God gave. Breath, God gave. Next time you remotely want to get prideful about anything, stop and think that through for a second. So fine, you can sing really well. God gave you that. You can play an instrument. God gave you that. You can lead a group. It's a gift of leadership. You can communicate well and spread the gospel. God gave that to you. You look in the mirror and you say, boy, I'm good looking. God gave it to you. <laughs> what did you do? The longer I teach, the more I realize I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And it's more prayer of God, give me wisdom, give me knowledge, give me faith, because I can't do this. And these disciples, to sit there and say, Who's the greatest? While Jesus is talking about going and dying? Oh, man. It's completely, utterly idiotic. Folks, I'm just telling you right now, if there's any tiny element of pride in you where you catch yourself thinking, yeah, I look good. I sound good. I am good. I'm great at this. Kill that pride as quickly as you possibly can. You've heard me say out here so many times before, God can work with murderers, he can work with adulterers, he can work with thieves. God does not work with pride. And be careful about pride because pride is deceptive. It can sneak in in ways you can't even imagine. I am glad Jesus called him out on this. And what we're going to do next week is go through now 
what he does with this, verse 35, and he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. We're going to use that as our stepping stone for next week. We're going to go through the rest of this chapter to talk about what that really means. But for right here, right now, we're going to finish with these two things, keeping the important things important, and then we're going to talk about this idea of arguing and disputing about who's the greatest. This is what we're going to close with. But we're going to stop real quick. Anybody have any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on to make sure we're all on the same page here? Yeah, Kenny. Can I pray for my, my buddy's dad? Pray for your bro- buddy's dad? Yeah, he doesn't even look at home. Let me write this down. What's his name? Doug? Doug? Yeah, my, my dad. Will do. We need to pray for Doug. Is he in the nursing home? Gotcha. Will do. Will do. We will pray for that, Kenny. Well, it sounds like he's a good guy. Doug in the nursing home. Got it written down. We'll pray. What's that? Doug's my cousin? Oh, Doug. You're talking about his dad. Okay, now I follow you. Yeah, I understand you're talking about that. Yeah. He's my guy. Yeah. There you go. Gotcha. We'll do. We'll keep Doug in prayer. Well, what's, you know what? What's his prayer right now, Kenny? Sure. Lord, I'm going to pray for Doug. We don't know all the details, but you know all the details. You are a God that hears and knows and understands, and you said to cast all of our cares upon you, and that's what we do right now. We cast all of our cares upon you, and we give you Doug in your name. Amen. Anybody else have any questions here about anything we're going through with this? Make sure you're all on the same page. Okay. Now, keep the important things important. Okay, how do you keep the important things important? Know what you know. Okay, let's just, let's just really keep this simple here. Know what you're supposed to do. I, and maybe this is you. I don't know how many times people have come up to me over the years, and they don't know what they're supposed to do. And then they overcomplicate God's calling. And they're sitting there debating whether they're supposed to go to Africa or take this job or do this or do that. And like, man, you are totally overcomplicating one of the most simple things. I just want to go through some verses with you here. First one, if you're a note taker, write it down. Four points. First one, John 6, 29. John 6, 29. If you want to walk out of this room tonight knowing what God has called you to do, let's start at the beginning. John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. So the first thing you need to do is believe in who Jesus Christ is. So if you have done that, You've done the first step in knowing what God wants you to do. He wants you to know him personally. Now, you may say, well, that's too simple. No, that's the most important thing you ever make a decision on in your life. So if you know who Jesus Christ is and you understand who he is and you have a relationship with him, that is all that matters. You've got the most important foundation piece of your life laid. Do not overcomplicate that. I was having a little moment the other day. I've told you in the times past, I can get sucked into televisions really quick. I was at Walmart just a couple of days ago, and I was taking some of the boys to go do something. They were doing something, and they wanted to look at something in electronics. And I'm standing back there in electronics, and right in front of the TV, and I am like the moth at the light. I want to bang my head against the TVs. I just am staring at them. Just, and I'm looking at the prices going, yeah, you know, yeah. And I'm looking at some of them thinking, that's literally twice the size of the television I have. As I'm sitting there, just... Flesh, an older lady comes up to me. And she goes, do you know anything about TVs? And I wanted to say, oh, honey, I know everything about TVs. You know, if you want to know about a TV, I'll tell you about TVs. 
And I said, well, what, what do you need help with? And she goes, I can't get Turner Classic Movies to work. She goes, I want to watch my cowboy movies. I said, okay. So she went through all the issues, and, I said, and we were talking about it. I said, do you, do you have a satellite cable extension? She goes, hey, she has Dish. I said, I think you just need to call Dish. You know, I don't think it's a TV issue. I think you have an issue with, with your satellite provider. Now I turned into a satellite provider. Um, and then she just kind of drops a comment about how it's really been difficult lately because her husband died, and he used to take care of all this. And so I said, oh, I said, so are you a widow? She goes, yeah, I'm a widow. And I said, you know, God has a special place in his heart for widows. She starts crying right there in an electronics department. And next thing you know, we have this wonderful conversation about who Jesus is, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And she just, we started talking about her. Her name is Linda. I said, I'll pray for you. And it was just this amazing moment right there. And God said, James, get your eyes off the televisions. There's widows right here that need to be encouraged in Christ Jesus. Please keep the most important things the most important things, folks. I'm willing to bet what you're probably worked up about this evening has really nothing to do with eternity. So if we can get point one done, that this is the will of God, that you believe in whom he sent, that makes everything else easy. Jesus, I know you. I know you personally. That's your will for my life. Now, now that I know your will is for me to know you, what do I do with this? Okay, now go with me to 1 Corinthians 12, please. 1 Corinthians 12. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, James, I get this, but I want to know specifically what he wants me to do. Okay, well, let's talk about this. So let's build on this. We now know him personally. Now let's talk about what he wants you to do. 1 Corinthians 12. How can Jesus be so fixed, so steadfast on going to Jerusalem? Because he knew that's what God's call was for his life. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Please just be honest. Don't answer out loud. Are you ignorant about spiritual gifts? If I came to you right now and said, the gifts mentioned in Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, what gifts do you have? Now, if I really wanted to be a pain, I could, and ask you, what's your gifts? You would say, oh, I don't know. And I would say, then you're in violation of what Paul says of you're ignorant of your spiritual gifts. Why do we want to be ignorant of what God has asked us to be a part of and do? If you don't know what God has called you to do, and you don't know your gift set, God love you, and I don't mean this rude, what are you doing? You're just walking through life, not knowing what the Holy Spirit has gifted you to do? I tell you, I know I'm called to be a pastor. I know I'm called to be a teacher. I, I don't say that egotistically. I don't say that pridefully. I know that. So since I know that's what I'm called to do, if something pops up, I know that that's my calling right there, and I can focus my attention on it. Does that mean I don't help in other areas? No. But I know my primary calling are gifts of, of being a pastor and being a teacher. Jump ahead to verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Do you realize that? God gave you a gift through the Holy Spirit. He gave you a gift. See, everyone, and if you sit here and say, oh, I don't have a gift, then what you're saying theologically is, I do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of me, which then you're saying theologically, I'm not saved. You, if you are here tonight and you are born again and saved, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift. 
Well, I don't know what it is. Then spend some time in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12 and pray through them. And keep praying and praying and praying to know what you're called to do. Because if you already know God has called you to salvation, John 6, 29, now know your gift. And there's diversities of gifts, diversities of ministries, diversities of activities, 4, 5, and 6. We've taught on this before. Not everybody is called to come out and help with vacation Bible school. There's differences of ministries, activities, but you're called to support it. Not everybody is called to go to the prayer booth at the fair, but you're called to support it. Not everybody's called to the back-to-school giveaway, but you're called to support it. That's a different activity. Not everybody's called to the ministry of child care in the back, but you're called to pray for and support it. We're the body of Christ. So therefore, spend some time learning your gift. Okay, so now we've laid the foundation of knowing Christ. We laid the foundation now of knowing your gift. Now go with me, please, to 2 Peter 1.10. I normally don't go to one verse, but I want you guys to mark this, know this, underline this. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Be diligent to make your call and election sure. You put some honest-to-goodness effort into stopping and saying, Lord, what have you called me to do now practically? What does this look like? I know you personally, John 6. I know my gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? I figured out John 6 back in 1993, and I got saved. I figured out my gift set. Time went on that I was called to teach. And then 2 Peter 1.10, my calling is to this church. And I can say that with confidence. It amazes me. We will spend more time trying to pick out the color for our living room than figuring out what God has called us to do in life. We'll spend more time looking at a menu to try to find out what to order than we will stopping and saying, I wonder what the Lord wants me to do. Folks, if you don't know God's calling, you got your prayer focus here now for the week. And then once you take this all together, know what he's called you to do. Excuse me. Know him personally. Know your gifts. Know your calling. Last one, 2 Timothy 4, 5. 2 Timothy 4, 5. You don't need to turn there. Simple little thing. It says, fulfill your ministry. Whatever God's called you to do, now go fulfill it. I see so many Christians not having joy in life, not having peace in life, because they're not willing to figure out what they're called to do, and so therefore they never fulfill it, and they just kind of float through life. Folks, don't float finalize your calling, know what you're called to do, and do it with confidence. Now, there's a whole lot of other layers to this. I get that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, and you test and approve what God's will is. It's a process. But understand the simplicity of this. Know Jesus, know your gifts, know your calling, and then go fulfill it. This is why Jesus could say, I need to go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem because I know what God has called me to do. Go with me now to James 5, please. Let's tie this in now to arguing about who's the greatest. James 5. Look at James 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, now, now look at this. Eight, be patient. Establish your hearts. That word for established comes from the same Greek word that we talked about in Luke 9.51, over Jesus was fixed, set to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had such a set mindset to go to Jerusalem. James is telling us in James 5, verse 9, excuse me, 5, verse 8, to have that same fixed mindset of what? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Folks, understand either you're going to die physically or Jesus is going to return, and that should change how you live. It really makes you realize, why am I upset about this? Jesus is either returning or you're going to go home in death. Establish that mindset. Fix yourself on that. And when you fix yourself on that, look at 9. Do not grumble against one another. That ties us back into, we're going to sit here and argue about who's the greatest while Jesus Christ is getting ready to return? We're going to sit here and argue about who got more pats on the back while people are dying and going to hell? We're going to sit here and argue that you get more attention at church than I do while there's a widow that needs ministering to? Oh, man, we got to let that stuff go. Do not grumble against one another. Grumbling, complaining, murmuring, desiring for greatness will get your eyes off as Jesus wants. Just like the disciples got their eyes off Christ going to Jerusalem to die because they were too busy arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus fixed his mind towards Jerusalem. James 5 tells us to establish our hearts, fix our mind on the return of Christ and to stop the grumbling. Last verse to take you to. Can you go with me to Philippians 2? This is another one and done verse, but you need to see this one. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Some of your translations say grumbling. All means all. Just tie this with me together here as we get ready to close. Keep the most important things important. You're not going to miss out on the big thing. The problem is you're going to give too much attention to the little things. Careful of that. Keep the most important things important. Know what you know. John 6, know Jesus. That's the most important thing. Once you know Jesus, then know your gifts. Once you know your gifts, then know your calling. What has God called me to do with that? And then 2 Timothy 4, 5, go fulfill the ministry God gave you. What's going to keep you from doing that? Grumbling, complaining, murmuring, desiring for greatness. You are so focused on you that you've lost Jesus. So therefore, realize James 5, 8, and 9. Christ is returning. Establish that fact in your mindset so you do not grumble against one another. And then you take Philippians 2 and you say, I'm going to do all things without grumbling and complaining because what's the point of it? The disciples were so argumentative about their greatness, they lost the fact that Jesus was going to die right in front of them. How much have we lost grumbling, complaining, murmuring, desiring greatness, and all those problems when really it's like supposed to be all about Christ and all that we do and all that we say.
Folks, keep the most important things important. Now, we're going to practically next week get into this because verse 35, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. We're going to take that point now. We're going to talk about dying to ourselves. And then we're going to go through and establish all these examples he gives now for the rest of Mark chapter 9. But this week tonight, we just lay the foundation. I really wanted to get into more of that tonight, but I knew there wouldn't be enough time to do it justice. So we're going to cut this one a little bit short here tonight. All righty. So what do you do with this? Here's your homework then. Do you know Christ? Do you know him personally? That's the most important thing. John 6. This is the will of God that you believe in him who he sent. Know him. Once you know him, folks, spend some time in prayer. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Go through the different gifts and realize, okay, God, you got a gift on there for me. What's my gift? Then 2 Peter 1.10. Know your calling and your election. Make them sure in Christ. And then go fulfill that ministry. And as you fulfill that ministry, be careful of the grumbling, the complaining, the murmuring, the desire for greatness. It will knock you right off track. Keep the focus on Christ, on his coming, on his death, and realize that's all that matters is Jesus Christ and all that we say and do. If you don't know, it's not wrong to ask a question, folks. The disciples out of fear did not ask. Zacharias asked, but as a skeptical unbelief, Mary got it right. She asked in wonder-filled amazement that, Lord, you want to use me? Lord, you want to use me? How? Oh, man, God likes those type of questions. All right, any final questions about anything here about the lesson before we close up and we let you guys go with a word of prayer? Mark. That's true. God used my um, greed. Is that what you're trying to say, Marv? Well, I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, he knew you were going to buy me yet. Right. And he knew you were going to buy me yet. <laughs> That's not of the Lord. I shouldn't have said that. Old Testament, I could have got stoned for saying that, so I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, that's right. No, you know, you're right, and this is the beauty of the Lord. I mean, if you look at it, let's just, let's just go this route. I, you know, I really do believe that the Lord is good and does good, and the Bible says he does good in all things. Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for the good of those that are called according to his purposes. The king that followed David, Solomon, that built the temple was the son of the woman that David had the affair with, Bathsheba. So God took this situation that was not good, an affair with Bathsheba. Uriah is killed, but yet the offspring of that produces Solomon that God then uses as the king of Israel. You know, some of you here tonight have made some really poor life choices, and God still says, I'll redeem it for good, because he's a good God. He's a good God. Anybody else got any questions about anything here before we close up? All right. Would you guys stand with me, please? Let's commit this to prayer. Lord, we are here tonight because we want everything you have for us. We want to know you personally. We want to know your gifts. We want to know your calling for us, and we want to go fulfill it. Lord, we don't want to complain. We don't want to grumble. We don't want to murmur. We don't want to desire greatness. We want to deflect all glory to you. We want to reflect the light of Jesus. 
Lord, help us to not be so focused on us that we forget eternity and all we say and all we do. For you and your glory, we say thank you. And Lord, just also coming to mind right now, just want to continue to pray for Jim Burns, health, healing in all ways and all things. You're a good God, and we say thank you. Your blessing upon these last two days of VBS to represent you and all we say and do in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.